This is 22 weeks with yours truly, Peter Alban Campbell. And this is week one of 22 weeks, beginning our rare novel journey through Ernest Hemingway's short novel, The Old Man and the Sea. And we'll dive into that shortly, folks, after getting all the usual plugging the socials and encouraging you to comment, like and subscribe in alphabetical order on the various outlets. You can join my growing band of incompletists and nonsensicals on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash incomplete nonsense. There is also my YouTube channel called Incomplete Nonsense with Peter Alban Campbell. And you can find that on YouTube by typing in Incomplete Nonsense with Peter Alban Campbell. Alban is spelt A-L-B-A-N. And this very podcast has been picked up on some of the outlets that you may be familiar with, uh, such as Spotify and on Google Podcasts, and it is hosted on RSS Podcasts at rss.com forward slash podcasts forward slash 22 weeks. And if you also type in Spotify, 22 Weeks with Peter Alban Campbell, again spelt A-L-B-A-N, and likewise on Google Podcasts, and you'll be able to find us on those particular platforms. So I hope you join us going forward. Also, if you would like to send me a comment or get a little shout-out on the show, you can email me at independentdundee, all one word, at gmail.com. So that's independentdundee at gmail.com and type in the subject header 22 weeks and you could tell me in the body of the message what your name is or your gimmick name and indeed you know where you're listening from and I'll give you a little hello on the show and do share those comments please as the podcast is called 22 weeks with Peter Alban Campbell and we recently got cleared on Spotify I've also created a Spotify playlist of music which contains 22 songs that I'm into right now and you can listen to that on Spotify. It's linked to the channel and you could also find it on the Facebook page that I mentioned before, which is facebook.com forward slash incomplete nonsense. And don't forget, of course, folks, that next week's reading is Herman Melville's novella Billy Budd. So do join us for that also. And I'll mention that again at the end of this show. <laughs> and that is that for the moment. Well, I say that is that, but continuing with the extended metaphor, I'm trying to keep you on the hook until the very end of the show, and I'll make the plea with you right now to hang around and we'll discuss some other topics of the week. Once, of course, we have delved into Ernest Hemingway's short novel or novella, The Old Man and the Sea. And in case you're wondering, the music used on this podcast is 100% licensed through Musicbed at musicbed.com. Musicbed is all one word. Okay. So this week we tackle our first big literary beast, Ernest Hemingway, and his 1952 novella, The Old Man and the Sea. This was the last major work of fiction written and published during Hemingway's lifetime, and indeed one of his most famous works, winning a Pulitzer Prize Award in 1953 and cited by the Nobel Committee as contributing to their awarding him of the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1954. 
It was written in 1951 while he stayed in Cayo Blanco in Cuba and contains some of the dailiness of a local fishing community and the verisimilitude of marlin fishing. There is a famous photo that can be found online of Hemingway in 1935 having captured a 1,000 pound marlin on his fishing boat Pilar reduced to 500 pounds after being eaten by sharks attracted by the blood in the water of other sharks that he had machine-gunned to ward them off the catch. The only other work of fiction by Hemingway that I have read was Fiesta, or The Sun Also Rises, his 1926 novel that focuses on American and British expats living in Paris during the 1920s, part of that lost generation, meaning young adults post-World War I, who were disorientated, wandering and directionless in spirit. It is a fiction of decadence and frivolity that is somewhat autobiographical, containing a fictionalised self. You can get a sense of that milieu in the Woody Allen film Midnight in Paris, which is one of the better films of Woody's later career. In that book, Fiesta or The Sun Also Rises, a group of friends travel from Paris to Pamplona in Spain for the festival of San Fermin to watch the running of the bulls and the associated bullfights. And it all makes for a very profound experience. As for the old man in the sea itself, I will start with a summary of the story and initial impressions to hopefully not spoil things too much for those yet to read it. It tells the story of an elder fisherman named Santiago a widowed Spanish expat living and working in Cuba, fishing alone in the Gulf Stream, and having experienced an 84-day streak of bad luck in not being able to make a significant catch. Sallow is the word that the community used to describe the worst kind of bad luck. It touches upon community, a dependency on friendship with a young boy named Manolin, who had been Santiago's devoted apprentice prior to the run of bad luck, now assigned by his parents to another fisherman, but who still retains a bond with Santiago over American baseball. And another theme is that of endurance and perseverance in the face of adversity, and having humility in defeat. Most of the story is set far out in the Gulf Stream, with Santiago at one with nature, struggling with a respected adversary in the form of a giant marlin that he manages to hook, and the eventual inevitability of not being the only predator in the sea. The story can be seen as an allegory for the struggle of the artist to remain viable. The bold steps required in order to achieve that and the savagery of the critics who can potentially tear the work to shreds. Also, the timing of it, within a few years of the aftermath of World War II, has another allegory of facing several battles, developing a grudging respect for the tenacity of the opposing side, facing the stealthy threat of a deadly enemy, witnessing the mutilation of a fallen comrade, and summoning the brutality and strength required in order to kill rather than be killed. I read this short book in the space of a couple of days and found it to be rather touching. As someone myself that has lived on past glories somewhat and has faced the frustrations of being seen in a certain light, in a work setting of being typecast in a certain role and being overlooked for opportunities, I returned to university as a mature student with my confidence shattered, but with an underlying desire to prove myself once more, so I can empathise with the despair and hope of the old man's plight, and with my own quest nearing its end point in our current COVID-dominated environment, I am now experiencing something of an anticlimax. Anyway, Hemingway packs much into his short, beautiful, and deceptively simple prose, and does some really interesting things with narrative composition. 
In the first page alone, the reader is given the context. The Gulf Stream setting, the 84 days of bad luck, the knowledge that his young companion Marilyn has been assigned to another working skiff by his parents, the sorry state of the old man's own skiff, the sail patched with flower sacks, and when furled, it symbolically looked like a flag of permanent defeat, and the battle-worn scars of the old man. None of these scars were fresh. They were as old as erosions in a fishless desert. The most admirable qualities of the old man are his humility and perseverance. Everything about him was old, except his eyes, and they were the same colour as the sea, and were cheerful and undefeated. Many of the fishermen made fun of the old man, and he was not angry. He was too simple to wonder when he had attained humility. But he knew he had attained it, and he knew it was not disgraceful, and it carried no loss of true pride. Yet he is quietly motivated to prove his viability, even though those in his community see him as sadly past it. When it comes to his friendship with young Manoline, who looks up to Santiago, there is a touching dependency upon one another. A companion and stand-in son or grandson to the widowed old man, who he has taught the tricks of the trade and engages him in his love for baseball. And the young boy, who is made to feel like a man in buying Santiago a beer, between fishermen, and takes on the responsibility of assisting Santiago to carry his gear back to his simple shack and to make sure he is fed and cared for. Santiago's shack is so impoverished that his bed springs are covered with old newspapers and he rolls his trousers to fashion a makeshift pillow. But no matter how uncomfortable his lot may be, he remains a dreamer. The boy represents his only encouragement to keep dreaming in spite of the harsh reality. There was no cast net and the boy remembered when they had sold it but they went through this fiction every day. There was no pot of yellow rice and fish, and the boy knew this too. The old man's dreams are of youth, innocence, and belonging. He dreamed of Africa when he was a boy, and the long golden beaches and white beaches. Then he dreamed of the different harbours and roadsteads of the Canary Islands. He only dreamed of places now, and of the lions on the beach. They played like young cats in the dusk, and he loved them as he loved the boy. Perhaps the lions symbolise a youthful pride, and the Canary Islands give Santiago more of a Spanish identity than Cuban. Apparently the character of the old man was inspired by Hemingway's first mate on the boat Pilar, Gregorio Fuentes, a blue-eyed man born on Lanzarote in the Canary Islands. After going to sea at age 10, on ships that called in African ports, he migrated permanently to Cuba when he was 22. On the 85th day, with Santiago motivated to finally break his bad luck, he rose far out into the Gulf Stream alone, and Hemingway from here on utilises a couple of devices in particular within his narrative composition to play out the internal, psychological, and external, physical drama, alternating between direct speech, as the old man communicates aloud with nature and with his adversary the marlin, and free indirect speech, where his internal thoughts are communicated for an omniscient narrator that cannot help but intrude upon the narrative, perhaps inspired by Hemingway's prior career as a journalist. The fishing line itself holds a symbolic function in the narrative, tightening upon moments of dramatic tension and relaxing in those moments of respite, before the stillness again builds anticipation. The tugging at the other lines of bait are a reminder for Santiago that he and Marlin are not the only occupants of the sea, and that indeed other predators exist out there. With the hook at one end of the fishing line, in the mouth of the giant fish, strong enough to tow the boat in any direction, the old man is permanently attached to the line at the other end, linking man and fish in mutual entrapment.
I have picked out some quotations from the book that provide examples of the very thing that I'm talking about. He had probably started to talk aloud when alone, when the boy had left. Now he said his thoughts aloud many times, since there was no one that they could annoy. In that quotation from the omniscient narrator, we have some kind of metafictional acknowledgement of this shift that will constantly occur throughout the narrative between Santiago's direct speech and the free indirect speech of the narrator. He waited, with the line between his thumb and his finger, watching it and our lines at the same time, for the fish might have swum up or down. Then came the same delicate pulling touch again. He'll take it, the old man said aloud. God help him to take it. In that example, you have that shift between the narrator's voice and the old man's own voice. And here you also have the sense of tension that is on the line. The line itself becoming a narrative device. The anticipation, the waiting, the hope and the desperate pleading from Santiago. The line had been taut, up to the very edge of the breaking point since he hooked the fish, and felt the harshness as he leaned back to pull, and knew he could put no more strain on it. You're feeling it now, fish, he said, and so, God knows am I. Here we have, as one of the quotes says, the tension reaching the breaking point, and now it's a case of mutual pain and strain, and a case of who is exhausting who. How many people will he feed? He thought. But are they worthy to eat him? No, of course not. There is no one worthy of eating him, from the manner of his behaviour and his great dignity. Here we have Santiago's admiration for his adversary, referring here to the fish as his brother of the sea. Uh, that's something that he uses throughout. He constantly thinks of him as his brother, and then towards the end, almost as a, as a fallen comrade. Never have I seen a greater or more beautiful or calmer or more noble thing than you, brother. Come on and kill me. I do not care who kills who. He woke with the jerk of his right fist coming up against his face and the line burning out through his hand. He braked all he could with his right. Finally, his left found the line and he leaned back against the line and now it burned his back. Here we have the treachery of being lulled into a false sense of security and the cruel awakening to the torturous ordeal of constantly dealing with the fishing line. Hemingway also plays with the sense of the mystification or mythologizing of nature. For example, in the following quotation, Then the fish came alive with his death in him, and rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and width, and all his power and his beauty. He seemed to hang in the air above the old man in the skiff. He saw him first as a dark shadow that took so long to pass under the boat that he could not believe its length. No, he said, he can't be that big. The marlin is indeed longer than the skiff, and once finally harpooned, it must be tied by Santiago to the side of the skiff. Pondering the question from him, is he bringing me in? Or am I bringing him in? Towards the end of the story, warlike imagery is used to evoke the brutality of the sharks, a mutual enemy of both the old man and the deceased Marlin, who becomes Santiago's fallen comrade, mutilated by their vicious attack. This seems to serve as an allegory for attacks and battles during the Second World War, this was a fish built to feed on all the fishes in the sea. They were so fast and strong and well-armed that they had no other enemy. Here, referring to the Mako shark, with a stealthy and, dare I say it, German efficiency as a supreme war machine. There were also the kamikaze-like Galanos sharks, 
hateful scavengers that leave the skiff shaken with the destruction. And the narrator racially describes them as having slitted yellow eyes. Santiago is self-reflective enough to admit his mistake of going too far out into the Gulf Stream for desperate reasons, alone and ill-equipped to both capture and defend the Marlin from further attack. Showing a remorse for his mutilated brother of the sea in this quotation. Half fish, he said. Fish that you were. I am sorry that I went too far out. I ruined us both. But we have killed many sharks, you and I, and ruined many others. In the end, the old man endures. He may return personally disappointed, but he earns a newfound respect from those in his community that had previously made fun of him. Amazed at the sheer size of the marlin skeleton, still attached to the side of the skiff, and measuring 18 feet in length, he returns home alive after the defiant ordeal with the sharks, and is reunited with his young friend, the boy, Manolin, who will join Santiago on his next adventure. I detect, though, to avoid being too sentimental, Hemingway chooses to end the story on a more cynical note, with the party of American tourists that now descend upon the local Cuban fishing community, and with a misinterpretation that arises from the broken English of the waiter, who explains to one of the inquiring American tourists what's the great long white spine with a huge tail floating in the water with the disposed beer cans and our garbage was, thinking it to be from a shark, and it now symbolises the disposable nature of temporary fame or celebrity. I have now seen one of the adaptations to film, with Spencer Tracy in the role of the old man Santiago. It was released in 1958, just a few short years after the novella's publication, This is one of the more faithful adaptations, with much voiceover narration interspersed with diegetic speech, in a way, and really mirroring that direct and free indirect speech from Hemingway's own work. The photography is kind of of its time, with projection and stock footage blended in with matte painting skies, for example. But Spencer Tracy gives a great performance in it, giving some gravitas to the delivery of the dialogue, and he actually looks as if he lived the part. He received an Oscar and a BAFTA Award nomination for the performance. And I know there's also been other adaptations, even a, an animated short film from 1999, that happened to win the Academy Award for Best Short Film, as well as winning many other awards internationally. So feel free to check those out if the book, you know, piqued your fancy. (laughs) And that is that when it comes to Ernest Hemingway's short novel, The Old Man in the Sea. So hopefully that was interesting for you. And I've done a, as we'd say here, a no bad job, eh? Now, please, please stick around for the next few minutes and I'll discuss some things that I've been up to in the past week and go over some topical discussion, which shouldn't take too much of your time. So, bear with me. Thanks. As I mentioned earlier, all of the music used on this podcast is 100% licensed through Musicbed and they can be found at musicbed.com. Music bed is all one word. So folks, you've almost made it through week one of 22 weeks with Peter Alban Campbell. And a thank you once again for bearing with me as I, as I find my way through this podcasting game and figure out how to, how to format and how to edit the show properly. I'm very much an amateur, as you could probably tell. But hey, we'll, we'll make it to some kind of standard anyway, even if it's not Joe Rogan standard, <laughs> it certainly is I'm, as I'm on Spotify <laughs> and and a couple of other places like Google Podcasts. 
but I can certainly aim to be a better version of myself by the end of these 22 weeks. The decision that I made this week was to effectively put the money up front, as it were, in my discussion of Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea, and the hope was that once that was done, you would you would hang around for a few minutes more and listen to me ramble on about what I've been up to in the past week. If you find that interesting or not, hey, you know, who knows. After all, I suppose the selling point of this podcast is the idea that I read and discuss 22 books in the span of 22 weeks. As I mentioned in week zero, which was the test podcast and introduction week, I'm a part-time, supposedly mature, student studying here in Dundee, in Scotland, and I do that in between working full-time and also with some family commitments as well. So spare time tends to be very minimal. However, in the past week, I finished my last university assignment of the semester. So I'm pretty much free now all summer. And the joke that I've made is I'm free to do nothing and go nowhere, especially with all these restrictions that we have at the moment. Although, you know, it does seem to be easing a bit, but, you know, not easing far enough for me, you know. The subjects that I tend to do for my university degree are English literature courses, so hence the interest in the books. I mentioned in that prior episode that the plan was to take a week off, just to try and recharge the batteries after that final assignment of the semester, as you can certainly get burnt out when it gets very intense near the end, and you can also feel a bit weird for a bit afterwards, this kind of you know, a passenger in the car of your own life type of thing that, that tends to happen for me in a way and some other people that I have spoken to about it. But being honest, like so many other people out there, the, the main thing that's really burnt me out in the past year has been the past year <laughs> and the events that we've seen, the crazy, crazy situation that we've been living through. And this whole period right now for me is just really an anticlimax. After all, it's the it's the spring, it's the end of the university year, and I think it was Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales that had this whole idea of the spring awakening, you know, the, the time that you venture out on pilgrimages, but we certainly can't do that, or we're certainly not going to be going very far for that pilgrim. Although restrictions do seem to be easing a bit, but for me, certainly not easing enough. I don't really know if this is quite the world that I want to venture into and rejoin again. This whole idea of, you know, mandatory masks and social distancing and stand here, don't stand there, do this, don't do that type of thing. Oh, no, 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 that's that's not for me. And the whole idea of just nipping to the pub for a pint to, you know, <laughs> cleanse the palate on a on a warm, dusty day, is not going to happen either, is it? If it's going to be the case of, show your papers, please, or your vaccine passport on your phone, and do you really want to hang around these other people in their masks? No, it's not inviting at all. So, no, I'm happy enough to continue to give that a miss for a bit. And... <laughs> probably go back into hibernation. <laughs> well, the whole idea... Uh, as, I, as I mentioned as well in that introductory podcast was I was really going to enjoy these books by sitting out in the garden when I come home from work or over the course of a weekend but of course with it still being springtime the, the weather isn't really right for that yet certainly recently here in Dundee the weather has actually been pretty freaky you know in a matter of minutes you go from sunshine to hailstones <laughs> and back and forward again so yeah i think we're gonna to have to wait a few weeks more before we can get the get the deck chair out you just miss that sense of adventure and freedom again just to you know give you something to look forward to and give you that boost especially as as we've gone through a long winter and lockdowns you know we're, we do need that that release and what I've tended to do in the past when I've finished my my last semester, which is usually about April time every year, uh, I tend to go on a 
on a rail journey, a sort of mini tour of the Highlands and Islands here in Scotland for, you know, over the span of a week, uh, staying in little B&Bs, that's, you know, bed and breakfast type places in very small, remote surroundings, hillsides, rivers, sorry, lochs. <laughs> ah, you just, you just miss it. And hopping on a ferry over to, to one of the islands and doing this... Well, for me, I stay in Dundee, which is the east coast of Scotland, but kind of doing this clockwork journey of the of the Scottish mainland and islands. Ah, oh, God, I just just missed that. But as I say, you know the <laughs> the restrictions and the do's and don'ts. Oh, you know that's just too much of a <laughs> too much to think about. Too much of a hassle <laughs> and. Yeah, you want your your holiday to be relatively hassle-free or than, you know, worrying about <laughs> making the train on time or making the ferry on time. But hey, we'll see. We'll see what happens going forward. As it turns out, next semester, which runs from September through to the end of December, will actually be the last semester of my degree, which has come rather quickly and unexpectedly for me. Certainly, I still thought that I had at least one year to go, but no, as it turns out, it's just just that one last semester when I was speaking to the advisor of studies. So that's certainly given me something else to think about because now I don't have as much time to to ponder as I, as I thought that I did. <laughs> but in reality, I've had more than enough time to ponder what next. But I've I think I've chosen to otherwise be distracted by <laughs> short-term projects like this. But when it comes to the work situation for me, I've actually been with the same employer now going on 15 years and pretty much doing the same type of work that I've done for the last 15 years. As I mentioned during the during the discussion of the book this week, uh, I do feel typecast in a certain type of role and people do see me in that role. And yeah, that's that's really frustrating because you certainly feel that you could do more and you're capable of more, but you never get the opportunity to to show that. And I've also had the the thing in the past. Uh, I don't take disappointment very well, although that's you know it's getting you know getting a bit better with age because I'm getting used to it. <laughs> don't think that's something to be proud of. But when I've applied for other jobs in the past. It's just so disheartening, isn't it, to neither hear a reply nor get an interview. And uh, even even when you think you've had a had a good interview, to to then probably find out that you've been interviewed for something where another person is already doing the job, and it's just a an interview for show type of thing, which is just bloody awful. I don't know why they do that. Obviously, they've got to do it. I suppose illegally, but oh, you know, it's just so bloody frustrating. Just in case you're wondering what my last university essay was about, well, it was on the subject of American literature of the 19th century. Well, certainly that was the the module title, and the essay itself that I decided to write on, and but this one actually proposed my own question, and that was to look at at the form of the short story, certainly in, in regards to to the development of new media in the nineteenth century in, in America with the the idea of mass printing and monthly magazines and periodicals. Certainly the the short story came into its own as a as a as a form of writing. And I decided to narrow that focus down to Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who are two of the the most worthy names of American short stories of the nineteenth century, and uh, I picked uh, I picked four short stories all in all, so two from each writer, and with Nathaniel Hawthorne it was the Minister's Black Veil and my kinsman Major Molyneux, and for Edgar Allan Poe it was the Fall of the House of Usher. And the purloined letter. Actually, this is a 
a good time to remind you of our reading for next week, which is Billy Budd by Herman Melville. And Herman Melville was actually a contemporary of both Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he had certainly written about Nathaniel Hawthorne and his, his admiration for Hawthorne's work, which is an inspiration upon his work. So that was something that I definitely used in my essay on on both those writers. And Poe himself, as well as being a sort of master of the horror genre, as he's probably better known now, was also a, a journalist and critic in his own career. And he had written on Nathaniel Hawthorne also. But something that's definitely worth checking out for the for the would-be writer or would-be essayist is is the essay by Edgar Allan Poe called The Philosophy of Composition. And in that particular essay, he breaks down his most famous poem, The Raven, and goes through a structure, um, how he wrote it retrospectively with the idea of effect in mind. So he already had how it was going to end in mind and thought about what would be the most impactful way to do that and worked, as I say, you know, retrospectively uh, backwards and that's how the poem is constructed. Well, according to him, anyway. <laughs> he might just be mythologising his own work by doing that. Or more the interpretation I get is he's breaking down the craft of the writer and how to structure something, as I say, for effect. So that's definitely something to check out, as I say. That's The Philosophy of Composition by Edgar Allan Poe. And that was something that was really the the linchpin for me for, for the essay. There was, a, there was a particular quote in there about how for a work to, to be its most impactful, it needs to be read in one sitting. Otherwise, the affairs of the world interfere if there's a break between sittings. And that that really kind of speaks to the whole idea of the short story. And something that would definitely recommend for someone wishing to check out both of those writers would actually recommend a couple of stories which are pretty short and you could probably read, read them both in the span of an hour. And from Edgar Allan Poe, it would be The Fall of the House of Usher. And from Nathaniel Hawthorne, it would be My Kinsman, Major Molyneux. And I suppose the tact to take when you're thinking about them is think of them as dark allegories for American independence. And if that's your first time ever encountering Nathaniel Hawthorne, then I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at just how good he is. He, he certainly tends to have a, a similar kind of milieu that crops up for his stories, which is puritanical New England. Uh, he was from that part of the world himself. And as it turns out, his great-great-grandfather, John Hathorn, uh, slightly different spelling, uh, he was one of the judges in the Salem Witch Trials. So the darkest moments in puritanical history from that part of the world. And it's certainly something that has a, a sort of profound effect upon his writing. But in My Kinsman, Major Molyneux, it's set in this, I suppose it's meant to be Massachusetts Bay uh, during that, that period of time where, where it was ruled by British colonial governors and there was this uprising for, for independence just to kind of, you know, put them out on their backside, <laughs> really. So... Yeah, it's really it's, it's a really clever story that, and the way it's structured as well. Uh, one of the things I use in my essay is there's different forms that seem to get merged into the short story during the nineteenth century, and these forms include the sketch, the essay, and the tale. Uh, I suppose the way to think of the sketch is as kind of snapshots of of moments in time. Uh, someone with their pen in hand observing incidents and and I suppose giving you the you know the establishing shot that you would get in a film type of thing so that's that's what sketches tend to be and they themselves are actually kind of a, a bit of a hybrid in some ways between the essay and the tale uh, certainly as they're patched together and 
the essay, of course, is more from the some from the standpoint of addressing an audience and addressing the audience with a voice of authority. And the tale, historically, uh, tends to have more of a didactic connotation to it. Uh, I suppose if you think of medieval morality tales, for example, there's a particular kind of parable or, or point, religious point usually, to to tales. And it's interesting to see how he blends all of that together in My Kinsman, Major Molyneux, and in our short stories from Hawthorne. And he's very good at vividly painting a scene as well. He's certainly got a particular aesthetic about him, which actually Herman Melville, who, as, as I say again, we discussed next week, he sort of described it as, I suppose, painting the the blackest form of blackness <laughs> or, or something to that effect. And you, you do get this very vivid, nightmarish uh, depiction, I suppose, in, in that story. Uh, it would certainly remind you of, I don't know if you've ever seen paintings by Peter Bruegel the Elder or Hieronymus Bosch, for example, but in terms of the the bizarre setting and perhaps even more bizarre characters that, that occupy that setting is something to bear in mind when you read My Kinsman Major Molyneux. But yeah, definitely check him out. He's really, really good. And if you've never read Edgar Allan Poe or the short story The Fall of the House of Usher, I suppose my cue to you would be to employ the type of objective scepticism that the, let's just say, unreliable narrator, who is also a character in the story, does not employ. He certainly does not have the the critical eye that one should certainly have in that situation as the as the clues for what may be truly happening are in there. And Poe himself actually was, was someone that was an early inventor of the detective story. Uh, one of the one of the short stories that that I went over in my essay was the Pearlwind Letter which features the character of August Dupin, which is kind of a, a forerunner for this type of Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes type of type of character. And it's interesting to see, even in his somewhat horror-type stories, there's actually a, a basis of, of rational explanation as to what may be truly happening that, that evades the narrator. So that's, that's one way to, to read it. And you can also read it as well from an aesthetic perspective. Poe had used these terms arabesque and grotesque to describe his short stories. And those terms, grotesque and arabesque, actually refer to decorations of classical antiquity that had kind of come back in vogue during the 19th century for a bit, certainly when Poe was writing. And these type of decorations tend to be more associated with places like Pompeii and Persepolis, so, you know, fallen cities, and tends to have this sort of decadence in its in its aesthetic. And that's certainly what Poe brings to the stories. It seems to be this obsession with with fallen empires <laughs> or um or old aristocracies falling and that's where the the dual kind of name of the title, the fall of the House of Usher, comes into play. Not only is it the the fall of the house itself, but it's also the the fall of the dynasty. So this whole idea of a downfall then sort of predates what would come in later decades of the nineteenth century, which is this fin de siècle concern, which comes off the back of. Darwin's The Descent of Man, and it's this whole idea of human evolution may actually reach a point where it goes back in reverse again, and it seemed to be this this whole, I suppose, dual idea of of decadence, like living it up as if it's all going to end come the end of the century. <laughs> and there's also the, that concern that runs through all sorts of works, and uh, someone who I touch on later on in 
in the 22 weeks is H.G. Wells. And uh, I might touch upon more in the fin de siècle. Come, come then, as it'll be more appropriate. Sorry, I realised I should have explained what fin de siècle means. It's French, as you could probably tell, and it means end of the century, with the century in question being the 19th century. So you're thinking of of being concurrent with the the peak of Victorian Britain, for example. You know, the peak of engineering feats and and having this worldwide empire, for example. You know, you've reached this peak, and and where do you go from the peak? Well. It's only downwards, isn't it? And that's that's where the whole concern comes from. It's the it's the idea that man himself has peaked, and we're all going to degenerate. Well, that's the that's the idea anyway. It's called degeneration theory, and we're all going to eventually <laughs> roll backwards and go back to that ape-like state. I suppose is the is the whole worry, and with that downfall kind of being inevitable it's the sense of hey live it up like it's like it's going to end tomorrow <laughs> and just think you know the biggest concern that we had at the end of the last century was well it was the millennium bug and if only we had known what was going to come with all the lockdowns and the whole covid situation then maybe we should have had our period of decadence <laughs> If we're all going to be locked down, then we should have certainly done and indulged and, <laughs> you know, found ourselves with all the things that we would regret for a year and hide away from the world for, for, for the next year and a bit. But hey, we missed that period of decadence to live it up. And damn, we should have done it. And as for that degeneration theory, well, I feel that might have actually happened with the, with the whole lockdown. I think people certainly have let their civility go. I've certainly seen that online through social media. And I do fear that once we once we eventually do unlock and and the beasts are let loose once more, then people are going to be very primitive, dare I say it. But hey ho, that's tomorrow's worries and to all tomorrow's futures. In terms of anything topical from the past week, well, there's not really too much, apart from, of course, the passing of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, the Queen's husband, and, of course, the, the patriarch of the family. And he was 99 years old, so certainly not, you know, not a tragedy, you know, to, to die at that age. But no doubt, you know, for, for anyone that's lost a... An older relative, you know, it's, it's sad nevertheless. But we have seen this this celebration of his life in in media coverage and through for people that have spoken out about you know meeting Prince Philip or or even from Charles and and Princess Anne, who's one of my favourite royals. When it's come to to their statements, you know, you do you do feel for them, and I suppose one of the things that I remember more about Prince Philip is, is for having that <laughs> that questionable sense of humour which which I like, you know, I'm I'm anti woke and I do I do like, you know, humour that's on the <laughs> that's on the more inappropriate side. And uh, I was I was looking at some of the, some of the clips online. Uh, I think it was there was one actually where he must have attended the opening of a hospital ward and he meets some of the nurses. And of course, there's one of the nurses from the Philippines. And of course, he gives the quip. <laughs> I bet your country must be half empty as you're all over here working for the NHS. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so certainly not, not politically correct. And I think there was another, uh, another person that was speaking about how they'd met Prince Philip and they'd mentioned to him that they'd done some work in a club and of course he quipped what a strip club <laughs> so <laughs> it was you know certainly a, a sly sense of humor to him uh, there's also someone as well where you've got this this reporter you know speaking about someone and then he just appears over their shoulder <laughs> and says okay are you done yet <laughs> so yeah he was a he was a character and yeah, I'm sure you'll. I'm sure you'll be missed. And it just seems like the timing of it is just really unfortunate when you consider 
what happened with the whole Harry and Meghan affair, certainly with the Oprah Winfrey broadcast and all the, I suppose, the dirt and mudslinging and and not very, very noble, intact stuff that came out of that. And you just thought at the time, oh, you know, you're just so, so mistaken in what you're doing. You know, you're you're burning bridges with your flesh and blood, with your with your family, and looking at the age of your grandparents with Prince Philip and the Queen herself. You know, they're they were certainly getting on there, and you just felt that the next time that you would be coming home to see the family again would not necessarily be on the happiest of occasions. And well, you know, here we are. But I do believe he is coming back for the for the funeral, although Megan is is staying at home and probably best advised to do that. I also mentioned as well in the introductory podcast, which was week zero, the test podcast, that I was looking into healthier alternatives to alcohol. Certainly I've consumed more than the <laughs> more than the recommended share over the past year and that is something that I'm looking to to cut back on and to find alternatives to. So with that being said, in the past week, actually just over the, the past weekend, I received a delivery of 24 cans of CBD infused beverages or sparkling beverages from a company called Little Rick. Now I'm not being paid to to advertise them here as just um, making a comment on someone that that I've looked into and I'll hopefully be be honest about about that. I've tried uh, other CBD infused products before, as I heard that it was something that might be recommended for for people that have problems sleeping or, in my case, uh, problems with inflammation. I do have a lot of joint pains and aches and pains that, that I'll live with on a daily basis. So, you know, that was something that I, I did look into before and actually tried quite a high-strength one. You know, you put little drops under the tongue and it didn't really do anything for me, actually. I didn't really kind of notice it having any effect as such um, other than just having a, you know, quite a <laughs> a particular taste to it. But uh, but with these drinks, actually, they're they're quite high strength as well, and uh, apart from the, the first can that opened, and you get that you know that first hit straight away of the of the source, you know, which certainly reminds me of my more later teenage college years. You know, it's certainly you know a cannabis based product, but certainly not the psychoactive part of the cannabis plant. And actually, the the drinks themselves, the both both the British made, and they tend to be made with with natural ingredients. Actually, one that I'm drinking at the moment is their raspberry lemonade drink. So just in your average small can size that you would get a, you know, your your soft drink type of thing from the local shop, in, and it's you know it's it's a really nice taste actually, really refreshing, but. Again, as I say with the CBD, it's not doing anything noticeable for me. It's not, you know, getting rid of the the aches or pains or the issues that I deal with generally with anxiety. Um, yeah, maybe maybe that's the <laughs> consequence of you know of drinking high strength alcohols for a period of time. You're not you're not certainly going to get the any kind of buzz or or you know, chillaxness, that, not that that's a word, but <laughs> you know, you're not going to get that from that, I don't think. But, you know, it might be different for different people, but certainly, you know, if it was passing a shop, then I would certainly pick that up and drink that rather than drinking some better known branded soft drinks. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it was certainly worth giving it a try and I'll, I'll continue to, to look into into decent alternatives to drinking alcohol. Uh, I don't know what next though, but you know, as I say, I'm open to suggestions. So if you want to drop me an email with any suggestions, then you can email me at independentdundee 
at gmail.com. So that's Independent Dundee, which is all one word, Dundee spelled D-U-N-D-E-E. So independentdundee at gmail.com. And I should probably go over some more of the the, the plugs again for the socials. So you've got the Facebook page, which is the main one for me. That's my main social media page. And it's facebook.com forward slash incomplete nonsense. So that's facebook.com forward slash incomplete nonsense. And you could certainly join my growing band of incompletists and nonsensicals, as I've, <laughs> as I've called them, <laughs> on that page. Uh, I don't do Twitter or Instagram or any of these other pages, well, certainly not yet anyway. I think Twitter, from my interpretation of it, seems to be for the, you know, for the dregs of humanity or the, the vainest of celebrities. Instagram, while talking of vainness, tends to be very much of that looky-looky type of thing. With your social media influencers, you know, that's certainly become a become a job in some bizarre land world. And, yeah, so as I say, you know, it's just Facebook. And you can certainly check me out on YouTube. And if you type in Incomplete Nonsense with Peter Alban Campbell... So Alban is spelt A-L-B-A-N. If you type that into YouTube, I'm sure you'll you'll find my channel. And this very podcast, well, it's hosted on RSS Podcasts. So that's rss.com forward slash podcast forward slash 22 weeks. And it's, you know, 2-2. Two, two. You know, it's not 22, uh, you know, spelt out in words. It's it's 22 in in numbers. So, yeah, so it's hosted there, but you can also find it on Spotify by typing in 22 Weeks with Peter Alban Campbell. Or, again, the the same idea on Google Podcasts, and we'll see where else it gets picked up, (laughs) if at all. (laughs) So, thank you folks for for listening and (laughs) putting up with my rambles and my... Hopefully, <laughs> worthy discussion of Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. And next week, as I say, will be Herman Melville's Billy Bud. So I do hope you join us then. Thank you, folks, and enjoy your week. Take care. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.